well, I wish there was, I just wish there was more empathy. I wish we, I wish we felt people rather than looked at them, if that makes sense, you know? Welcome to The Body Protest. In this podcast, we combine storytelling and science to better understand our relationship with our bodies. I'm Honey Ross. And I'm Nadia Craddock. And this is season four. Okay. Oh Three, three, two, two one. one. Hi, party protesters. I literally had to close my eyes. Like I could. I feel like we're the kids at school who like no. are like encouraging each other to laugh in class, even though we're also the teachers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, completely. I actually had a thing the other day, or not the other day, but fairly recently at work, where we had someone in coming to give a talk, and I just had the giggles. <laughs> I was putting my hand up, asking all of these. I was like, "This is the child I was at school." Like. Stop, oh. what, stop, keep it together. But I was just being You're just a giggly girl. I mean, I love the thought I'm of like... being very annoying. No, but sometimes it's quite fun to be annoying. This is the thing we but don't talk it, about. That's... Like, we don't get I... to be annoying half as much as we'd like to be. <laughs> I know, you just annoy yourself. But this, I, I had a great time, but I felt very sorry for this bloke who was like doing the spiel. But um, I'm sure, anyway. I mean, I'm sure it was giggle worthy. <laughs> like, I trust your, I trust your giggles very, very strongly. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate it. I mean, this is um, now a bit of a pivot because this is quite, yes. uh, quite. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful episode. I think it's a, a slightly heavier episode, so um, I think it's important to do a bit of a warning at the start. We have a conversation about binge eating disorder. Uh, there's also mention of um, alcohol and drugs. So just, you know, if this is not the episode for you, that is all okay, but it is a wonderful one. So if you're up for it, stick with it because it's brilliant. Um, we speak to one of our absolute dream guests and she has been a dream guest since we started making this podcast four years ago. We speak to the wonderful uh, writer, Bryony Gordon. I mean, writer minimises her. She d- she does so many things and she does them so well. We are so excited about this episode. Yes, Bryony was so fun to speak to. I'm so glad we were able to chat with her and also have a deeper conversation about the experience of binge eating disorder. Um, it's something that we've touched on the, on the podcast before, but to have the conversation from someone's lived experience is really powerful and a very generous thing to share, which is something that we talk about a little bit with Bryony about what it means to share those kinds of experiences. Completely, and I think it really resonated. It resonated with me very deeply of her talking about her experience with anxiety and intrusive thoughts and she said things out loud about her intrusive thoughts that I've always been too afraid to share and you know seeing that bravery made me feel stronger and I you know I'm eternally grateful to her for that and we get into binge eating disorder a little bit more in the knowledge noodle at the end of the show so here is Bryony and we hope you love this episode as much as we do Hi, I'm Bryony Gordon. I am a writer, a mental health campaigner. I don't, I'm a bit of a flippity gibbet. I don't really know what I do. I do lots of different things. I I made Honey run around London in her underwear with me one one day. That was quite fun. Does that sum me up? I mean, oh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I have to say that quite a lot. Um, and I'm a mum. Uh, the two are not mutually exclusive, as it turns <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, that's me. I love that. I love that that introduction. I feel like you've covered a lot of a lot of things in in a very short space of time. And so, in anticipation for the conversation today, I was actually re-listening to your podcast, Mad World, and I really like how you open every interview with "Hi, how are you?" and like a really genuine "How are you?" So we thought we'd put a body protest spin on it. We're talking about body image. So, how do you feel in your body today? Very good question and so interesting because I was thinking about this before I came on and I was thinking about your podcast and I've listened to it and it's it's an honour to be on. But I was also thinking when my when I'm in, like mentally not in such a good place, the first place I feel it is in my body. And so it's almost like my body will kind of, I attack myself. And I, and I also think because I was, when I was a little girl, I was very unwell mentally ill with obsessive compulsive disorder to the point that I couldn't really leave the house for long periods of time but that was like the the mid to late well it was the early 90s I'm trying to make myself younger than I am and you know no one spoke about mental health then and I think I always felt like it was more physically it was more acceptable I was like if only I had a physical illness do you know what I mean but also I do think 
stress and anxiety and all the rest of it they are very kind of physical so I've been having like loads of um like palpitations and heart racing and it's just because I'm stressed so I feel like that actually in my physical body uh and it's a really it's a it's a it's a real real like I'm like oh no Brownie you're probably not dying of congestive heart failure you just once more have taken too much on so I'm interested in how my body can go there but also my brain will be like, you look like shit. Do you know what I mean? You, you look at you, you're falling, your face is falling apart. I'm like, what? No, it's just my face. Or you're really, you know what I mean? Like, it's like attack, attack, attack. Completely. Well, it's like everything, you you turn everything in on yourself and it becomes this kind of like, yeah, your brain is your worst enemy in those situations of like high anxiety. I, my brain does exactly the same thing. Yeah, I call it like, I call all my, all my like isms from my OCD to the, you know, everything sort of negative. I lump it into one thing and that's Jareth the Goblin King. So it's the, <laughs> the, the David Bowie character yes. in, in Labyrinth because it kind of sums up to me that thing of mental illness have how you know it's evil but it's ever it's really enticing you know that's such a wonderful way of putting it yeah it's kind of an enticing but very evil man in a purple trouser for sure silver that was how i felt as a child watching labyrinth and so anyway so i imagine david bowie in my head i ask for so little just let me rule you and you can have everything that you want Fear me, love me, do as I say, and I will be your slave. And I sort of go, David. I don't know, everyone loves David Bowie, so they're like, he wouldn't talk to you like that, Bryony. But Jareth He's amazing. Would. But I'm like, Jareth would, and I'm afraid Jareth looks like him. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I kind of have him. He's like, I'm like, oh, he's wanting to like stretch his legs out, get a bit comfortable in my frontal lobe. But I'm like, Jareth, not today, Jareth. Not today, Jareth. Well, we're glad Jareth is not joining us today. Uh, Unless he is, and that's absolutely fine. Um, All all welcome, right? All (laughs) all, all welcome. There is a seat at the table for Jareth if he he must be here. Um, Thank you so much for answering that. And I do feel like you've shared so much about your OCD and your experiences with mental health. And you've kind of, you got into a little bit just then. But would you mind, you know, telling us a bit more about your relationship with your body growing up? It was pretty bad. I mean, I, so, so yeah, so I, I developed OCD, what I now know was obsessive compulsive disorder when I was about sort of nine, 10, 11. Um, and I, but what it kind of manifested itself was like this obsessional fear of dying and of like spreading illness to people. Um, at the time there was like huge public health campaigns about AIDS, you know, and it was very, as a little, it was very kind of frightening. And so, you know, there's obviously rationally a nine-year-old girl uh, living in West London. Like I'd never even kissed a boy. My drug habit was like at least 10 years off, you know, and it was like, so there was no, I never had like a blood transfusion or anything like that, but it was like, it became, it was such a real thing in my head and I would like hide my toothbrush under my pillow because I didn't want to infect my family. And I've since learned this is like, there were kids all over the world feeling the same way as me. But I, you know, I didn't know that then. So, and people come up to me now and go, oh my God, oh my God, I had that too in the 90s. And so that was how it sort of started. And I just thought I was going to die. I thought I was dying or I thought I had the power to kill someone else. And I had to tell, I had to say these phrases to keep my family alive. So I get even now, like I'm 41 now, you know, and in, even now in my brain, I still those phrases can be like going around in my head like a jukebox, you know, it was like, I'd rather I died than my family, I'd rather I died than my family. And I had to say them again and again. And then I had to say them. Oh, sorry, that's just like, taken me somewhere. And then I had to say and then I was worried I hadn't said them right. So I had to and if I anyway, it was it was like that. And then it kind of it moved and it moved into intrusive thoughts. I always describe OCD as it's your brain refusing to acknowledge what your eye can see. So be it that your hands are clean or that the oven is off or the hair straightener is off or the door is shut. And it's there's a type of OCD, a sort of subset of OCD called pure O and it's about that, but it involves intrusive thoughts. So you know, we are not all of our thoughts. We all have thousands of thoughts every day and we are not each of our thoughts. And and we know that we all have intrusive thoughts. So we've all had that thought of 
what if I was someone's about to hand me their baby? What if I just threw the baby on the floor? Or what if I pushed that person underneath the tube or some, you know, like, like really, but most people, well, I hope you've all had that because you're not going, you're like, get this woman off your podcast now. No, please know I am haunted by intrusive thoughts consistently and have spent my whole life explaining them to people. So I am so like hearing you speak, this just makes me feel like I'm like, ah, one of us, like you're meant to be here. <laughs> anyway, but like most of us know like we 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 have these thoughts and then we know well like I'm not going to do that and we just dismiss them but someone with pure o is so distressed by the thoughts um that they will ruminate on them again and again to check they are not their thoughts so when i was about 16 or 17 it sort of went from this germ thing well it was weird because i had it when i was young and then it sort of went away for a while and then it came back and my brain jareth was saying to me maybe you're a serial killing pedophile Right. And I Oh, I know that one. Yeah. <laughs> I and my mum, my brother, I had my little baby brother who was born when I was like, so looking back, like he was little when I was like in my late teens. And I and I think there was all this kind of hormonal stuff. Going around. But anyway, it was horrible. And I used to like think that I'd blanked some I'd done something awful and blanked it out in horror. I couldn't say words like pedophile. Like there'll be people listening to this now. who I used to have to like. Uh, if I saw it in a newspaper or something, those days we weren't really online, uh, I'd have to find two other words on the page to kind of neutralise that. And it, so it was like that. And then the stress of that, my hair fell out when I was 18. So I had ale- I got alopecia. And then I guess, you know, I now know control is, you know, the thing of an eating disorder. But I developed bulimia. Um, and that, you know, that sort of, stayed with me you know and then I you know I found what I thought was the cure for all of this feeling other which was alcohol and drugs and let me tell you now cocaine and alcohol are not the answer to your problems in fact they're gonna like make them even worse but so I always think I always talk about mental like mental illnesses like physical illnesses are very easily treatable if you get them early on enough, right? So, like, if any of us were to get a diagnosis of diabetes type 2 today and we started taking our medicine and we did exercise and we changed our diets and we did what the doctor told us to do, we'd probably live long and healthy lives. But if we didn't, right, we had no treatment for it and we weren't given medicine, we'd probably end up getting our feet amputated or our toes amputated. You know, that's the kind of... And it's the same with mental illness. So what started as OCD sort of snowballed into alopecia, eating disorders, addiction, basically. And, you know, and here I am at 41 and I'm sober and, you know, and I'm really like, I am happy and content, but that shit still lives with me. You know, and I'm a woman who's done so, you know, I've done a lot. I'm like, I'm not, I'm like a size 18 She's like totally normal, but you know, I weigh like 15 stone or whatever, and I'm happy to be on Instagram in my underwear, but my it will still attack me, you know. And during lockdown, I like developed bin, you know, it went from I sort of thought I'd put my bulimia to rest, and it sort of appeared as binge eating, you know. So anyway, so my my relationship with my body is long and complicated, but it's a hell of a lot better than it used mm. to be. I mean, you even just the way you talk about your relationship with yourself is so inspiring and really just like makes me feel like it's going to be okay because I feel like we have a lot of overlap with things and um it is going to be okay honey I, know. I promise no, you I know and I like I think you make so many people feel like that you make me feel like that as well like I, I I'm so overjoyed that there are people like you and there are podcasts like this because oh my god if you know I just think to myself how different would it be when I was growing up you know completely well that I mean that is exactly why we try and we make this podcast because we're like this is what we we needed when we were growing up and I just hope it can help anyone but and I think this leads in really nicely to this question which is you are so generous with what you share and you know your stories and how you open up um what bolsters you to keep sharing and sharing not only highs but also lows mm, well I think that <laughs> I was thinking about this all the other day I'm like I get so sick I'm, not, I'm really happy for people when they post about their achievements it's not that I'm sick of it <laughs> but it, I'm really happy for people but I'm also like this isn't representative of people's like lives do you know what I mean like social media by its very and, and the media generally 
by its its very nature, it's like we're we're cherry picking bits. You know, you can't put everything up because otherwise people will be like, okay, that's enough. <laughs> but I I I'm like I was thinking about this the other day. I had a day where I just I couldn't do anything. I'd been unwell, and I'd it's just I was exhausted, and I had to cancel like everything that was in my diary that day. And I literally achieved nothing. Well, I, well, I achieved something because I got up and I was like, I'm going to do a post talking about how little I've achieved today because <laughs> so, and then what happened, it's like a kind of, it's probably not that healthy because it's about finding validation, you know, but people come back to me and go, oh my God, me too. And I'm like, oh, because in my head, Jarrah's telling me like, everyone's out there, do, no one, no one else cancels things, Bryony, it's just you because you are the worst human in the world. You know, why Why did you say yes to these things if you knew you couldn't do... How did you not... You know, it's all of that in my brain. And I'm like, please stop. I'm tired now, Jared. Yeah. But that's why it's so important that you do post things like, I'm taking a day. I haven't done anything today. Because that is massively fucking helpful for people to know that they're not alone in that. I think, like, we are... Like you said, everyone cancels plans. Everybody... You know, I read something today saying we should treat mental health more like chronic illness where it's something that flares up throughout your life and it's not something that is like wow I'm curable (laughs) yeah it's not curable I'm gonna have anxiety and depression my whole life and that's okay but in different states and it will cut you know there are times when I'm very level and centered and there are times when I'm not and that's you know that's gonna be my life but that's it's just learning how to manage it and people like you make it so much easier when you're like okay we're we're a you know unified front but I also think that, like, for me, the type... And when I started writing about that type of OCD, it was, like, I don't know, it was nearly 10 years ago now. Or, oh, I don't know, it all goes so quickly. But, like, there were st- there were people talking about mental health, but it wasn't, like, there was, like, Matt Haig, Stephen Fry, and Ruby Wax, and Alistair Campbell, and that was, like, <laughs> that yeah, was your... the squad. That was it, you know. <laughs> they were, like, they were, like, the, 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 you know, they were, like, the, fa- they were, like, the founders. The founding fathers and mothers of founding mental health. Fathers and but like it wasn't and and I and I remember writing right I was like I wrote about this type of OCD because I was desperate because I got to a point in my life where I was like I'd somehow cobbled together a career and been quite successful I mean that's the other thing about mental illness is that it doesn't look you know like it's it, we we somehow push through and get on with lives and people go well, you, you were doing well like you can't have been like when I'm like <laughs> but um I needed you know when my daughter was born I my OCD switched and Jareth was like what if you've hurt her what if you've hurt her and then I would like drink to like and when I put her to bed to kind of like you know numb numb shut Jareth the fuck up basically and um and I was sort of living in shame I was dying of shame, really, you know, when I think about it. And and I I needed, I kept reading that statistic, one in four people will experience a mental health issue this year. And I'm like, yeah, but where? Okay, so I look out and, you know, in my field of vision, there's like 10 people who have experienced this this year. But I don't, no one, we don't, no one talks about this stuff. We don't go around. So like I knew intellectually that there were people out there who had the same type of OCD as me, but I'd never like knowingly met any of them. So I was like, I'm going to write about this in the, in the paper I work for, The Telegraph. And to their credit, they let me do it, you know, and they were like, actually, this is really important because you're crying at your desk. And (laughs) this is clearly something that's really disturbing you. I wrote about it because I was desperate to meet other people like me. And I was like, if I put this down and the police don't come and arrest me, I'll know that I'm not mad or I am mad and that's okay, but I'm not bad. I'm not a bad person. And it was like, that was the thing that started off this kind of accidental career change career path to mental health campaigning like I couldn't I couldn't have seen I would know it was no there was certainly no kind of contrived plan to it if you see what I mean it was was very organic well it was desperate really yeah but I think it's it feels like it's been such a perfect transition especially like I mean the, the things you're fighting for like I read a quote you'd said where you were like the most normal thing in the world is to feel weird and I just thought that's so beautiful and that reson I think that resonates with so many people of like people feel so weird and like there's something wrong with them and so riddled with shame but unable to speak about it and it's like it's only through you putting that raw experience out there of your kind of experience with Pure O like that is huge that's huge 
Well, it's it's like I think it was necessary. It was just necessary a process yeah. for me. So people are like, you should, you know, people, and often, you know, that thing we have as women is that we're kind of accused of oversharing, you know, in a way that men can write books <laughs> about suicide and psychotic episodes, and they're like, oh, you're amazing. Let me give you the Pulitzer or whatever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then, and I, and I'm like, no, this isn't, this is what life is about. You know, it's about like, I remember when I ended up in rehab, which was after I'd written about OCD, it was writing about, you know, like if I think about that one act of writing about my OCD and then everything else. And then I realized that the alcohol and the drugs were like not normal. <laughs> they were not cool. You know, the way I used them wasn't cool. You know, that was what led me to, 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 to rehab. So when I talk about, I like, I don't think I've overshared, you know, I don't feel embarrassed or it saved my life, you know, genuinely saved my life and set me on yeah. a path of, of um, just the most incredible thing. You know, I'm here sitting chatting to you two, you know what I mean? And I'm like that, I don't know, it's, there's a magic to it that isn't, I don't know, but it all came from that, that desperation. Well, I think, and you know, it's it's so interesting of like people who have lived with any form of anxiety or OCD, I think knows that one of the few ways to kind of relieve it in any way is sharing how you feel. Like I know not always, and that's easier said than done, but to me, sometimes it's like op- opening the valve and it releases the pressure a little bit. Just when I share a thought that I'm like, this is so crazy and I could never share this. And you share that and immediately mm. you're lighter. You're like, oh, okay. And you too? Oh, thank God. Um, and yeah, I just... I feel very strongly about you doing that and doing it, you know, to, especially to the audience you're doing it to, which is an audience that I don't think necessarily always gets that I think space it's also, to be open. I don't know. It's like, it's so important. Like, I just, I see how much lives are destroyed by mental illness and and how the silence and the shame surrounding it just, you know, like all mental illnesses thrive in shame and silence. Like, that's what I say. That's what they all have in common from generalized anxiety disorder through to you know eating disorders depression OCD and psychosis and beyond you know what they all have in common is they lie to you and they tell you you're a freak and they tell you that you're alone and they tell you that no one's going to understand what you're going through and that's just bullshit like not only does someone understand what you're going through but someone's going through what you're going through right now and the moment they, they they thrive in a culture of isolation of silence and shame they want that and so the moment that you can burst through that in some way you're not cured as you said honey you know this is like it's often a chronic illness and you you know you relapse you 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 know you make progress you recover you're in recovery but you know it's a help it's a help because because and I think that's what I'm I'm also really interested in how like the last 18 months have have really kind of been a bit of a well a pandemic it's a head fuck it's a kind of like collective trauma but but also I worry about I always hear people, and I thought this, I was like, oh, actually, I'm really kind of glad. I, I'm happy not to see anyone. Like, this is, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that my diary has emptied out because, you know, oh, and actually, I just want to stay at home. And, and then I realised that the bit of me that was relieved wasn't me, it was Jareth. Because Jareth was like, <laughs> state-sanctioned isolation, I can get cosy. And, you know, before I know it, I've binge eating raw sausages at two in the morning and I am really not in a great place and depressed you know I'm experiencing depression and I'm lucky enough that I can like catch myself out now to do that but I I do see and I feel it myself that people are like actually I quite like not seeing people I quite like doing everything I mean I I can't talk for I can't talk for other people but I do think that there's a sort of anxiety has become the sort of norm if that makes sense for sure the pandemic has made me much more introverted than I was previously. Like, I think I was always, you know, an introverted extrovert, but for sure having, you know, government-sanctioned isolation, my brain loved that. It was like, finally, you've been prepping your whole life for this, like, lock yourself away, no germs, you're so safe. And I'm like, no, but now I, you know, I've lost that stamina and that emotional capacity. It's so hard. Anyway. (laughs) No, no more, enough about more. Me. What, 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 you know, but there's, there's something about like being close to people and feeling people's heartbeats and seeing the whites of their eyes, you know, that, um, yeah, it's anyway, I've gone off on a tangent, not entirely body related. 
maybe the theme of what we're talking about also is like finding connection and being able to be open and and talk with each other and and maybe relatedly Bryony I know last year and you mentioned it already today is you spoke more about the binge eating side of things with binge eating disorder which is again a very generous thing to do I think there's a lot of shame shrouded around binge eating disorder um in general um, and we don't hear about it as much we don't hear about that as much in when we're having these conversations about eating disorders and I wonder if you'd be happy to share what you wish people knew and understood about the condition and and maybe a little bit about what the response has been like since you've been more open about about that side of things what I wish people knew is that it's binge eating disorder I think they think you know often experts say is the most common form of eating disorder you know, it's interesting how even with all the work I do and the work I've done, I can attach such moral judgment to myself and and to that. And and I think you know, there's a sort of a feeling. You know, we do we just are very fat phobic mm-hmm. in this country. You know, and we're very pho- you know we're not particularly kind to people that overindulge. And like you can't do a podcast, so what you can't see is that I'm doing quote marks in the air over that. <laughs> you know, and um. And I don't, I think for me, it's really interesting as a sober woman, you know, it, it, it's very common. I've like, you know, you, you cross a dick, mm-hmm. you know, so one, you put down the drink and the drugs and up comes the food or, or and the opposite is addicted to restricting, mm-hmm. you know, and they're really two sides of the same coin, really, um, anorexia and binge eating disorder. Um, rest- and, and I think our whole culture is sort of mired in this horrible sort of, binge restrict thing which actually makes people more mm-hmm. ill so you have people who will go to the doctor and they will they will be suffering from binge eating disorder and they will be put on a diet and that is the worst thing you can do for someone who has binge eating disorder it just they just get stuck in a you just get stuck in a pattern of restricting yeah. binging restricting binging one of the interesting things was when i started having treatment for it was that i actually ended up eating more because I was being made to have three meals mm-hmm. a day plus snacks because I would, I would, I didn't know that I was doing this, but I wouldn't eat anything during the day. So almost like a plan this like evening binge. And of course that's, that's the recipe for disaster. That wasn't meant to be a pun, by the way. You know, like I'm a, I was like 40, 39, 40 when I realized I had this problem and I, I was like, it's it's nuts. So I'm like, like I'm vaguely intelligent, okay, and I'm vaguely, you know, resourced on this stuff. And I, and I only really realised it because I was researching this book I wrote called No Such Thing as Normal, which is like all the things I've learned about being well from being mentally ill. And I was, and I was, I wanted to know at the centre of it was like, what do you do if you're unwell? Like because it's it's all well and good hearing that that there's no um provision for mental illness but that is no that's not helpful when you're in mental illness like how do we how do people get help so i was speaking to all these different experts in their fields and i spoke to this woman who worked at beat the eating disorders charity and she starts talking to me about binge eating disorder and i found myself crying on the phone to her you know and realizing that that was again it was like oh that's something that has a name and it has a it's a thing other people do and so I think, you know, what I'd like, I'd like, you know, I just wish we spoke about it more, but there's so much shame and it's internalised as well. Do you know what I mean? Like we're so, you know, there's still this kind of, I have had treatment and I, and I haven't, like, I've lost some weight, right? Because when you're not eating raw sausages at three in the morning and like 78 bags of McCoy's, like that was my trigger thing, food. You know, when you start eating normally again, over time, you will lose weight, right? But to me, that is not the point of doing the binge eating treatment. The point is so that I feel better and I don't find myself in this dark, dark hole where I I have this dark hole in my soul and I need to fill it with something, you know? And it doesn't matter if it's food or it's drugs or it's alcohol or it's sex or it's whatever, <clears throat> or it's social media. I was stuffing it. I was trying to stuff the hole in my soul. And I was just making the hole bigger. Like the hole's like, leave me alone, leave me alone. Stop spraying emotional CFCs on me. Do you know what I mean? And and I just wanted to get help. I was like, I, this isn't, I don't like this. I don't like eating raw sausages at two o'clock in the morning. Like it's not, it makes me feel like, anyway. So I've been very careful. I haven't 
people I've noticed people comment on Instagram like oh you're looking really good and I'm like it's not it's not about that I think that's the thing is that we are so entangled up with you know it's it's so often also often the times when I have been at my slimmest or whatever I've also been at my most like guess what when I stopped taking cocaine and drinking I like put on weight like that's normal I was a much healthier person right you know like that's what I needed to do so like we have all these fucked up metrics of like what health is and I've been really careful not to like be like oh hi guys yeah I've lost a bit of weight that's because I'm you know I'm just like I can't it's I think that we have to really remove ourselves from that aesthetic thing because it's really dangerous and if you're getting treatment for binge eating disorder because you want to lose weight it's not going to work yeah that's like that surely is not the thing you should be going in for it you know that no and that that is not and that by the way is absolutely not a criticism of you okay because that is part of the fucked up world we live in where we're like judged by the amount of fat we have on our bodies or the lack of it or you know it's it's such a complicated thing to untangle you know and I, the most important thing is we start to untangle it in public because i'm not there you know guys i you know, I'm still like, well, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, I slightly, you know, my brain will still, because you don't, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. <laughs> you don't you don't go, oh, I'm just going to go on this course here with this woman. And then, oh, it's all, oh, wow, I'm really healthy. Like, I need to say that clearly. Like, I, I get messages saying, what are your tips? And I'm like, I can't give tips because I'm not an expert. I'm just someone who's got experience of it. I'm learning all the time and recovering all the time. And as you say, there will be like steps back and steps forward. And But I think it's so, I just think empathy. What I wish there was, I just wish there was more empathy. I wish we, I wish we felt people rather than looked at them, if that makes sense, you know? I was interviewing someone, this amazing woman called Dame Carol Black, and she was in charge of the government's drug policy review. And her five, what she worked at, she was basically, we are criminalising really unwell people, right? That's what we do Mm. when we chuck them in jail. And she was like, we need to treat drug addiction as we do chronic illnesses, right? And I think it's the same, you know, and to me, addiction is absolutely a mental health issue. And there will be periods of, you know, as you say, as you said, relapse, recovery. And I think it's like, I remember someone saying to me once, like, uh, change isn't linear. And if that's the one thing I can say to people, because I was part of me that felt like, oh, come on, Bridie. You've had, you've had, a, you know, you, OCD, bulimia, addiction, like what next? And I did get a few comments from people saying, oh, is this now, is this the next thing that you're going to mine for money? And I found that really like, that's not why you do what I do. I do it because I'm like, this is, I can't sometimes when I talk about it and I don't know what, it's just the kind of person I am. I'm lucky that I feel able now, I didn't before, but I feel able for whatever combination of reasons I felt able to talk about what was going on. And I am able to do it. And it makes me so angry when I sit here and I and I know that there are people all around us, you know, like everywhere. Everyone has their shit. Everyone, right? And I'm like, it really upsets me that we should just have to, like, it's just like keep it hidden inside us and suffer with it. And like the world does not, it, the world is not a better place when we all suffer in silence and we all si- we're all silent in shame. It's not a better place. It's not a happier place. Like, to me, it's a kind of win-win. Everyone gets better and healthier when we um, expose our shame to the light. It dies. That's what I learned in rehab. I do want to say, you've been sober for four years now? Yes. Yes, just over four years. Which is, I mean, such an incredible achievement and just so amazing. Would you mind telling us a bit about what your experience of sobriety has taught you about yourself? Oh my God, so much. I mean, I've learned, I don't know how, guys, I don't know how I was like, I don't know how I stayed alive, really. I'm really lucky because I I thought I was self-aware, but actually I was self-loathing and they're two very different things. Well, that cuts deep. Mm, Yeah, I I get that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I 
yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's true, isn't it? You're like, oh, yeah, I'm really critical of myself. That's being self-aware. I'm like, no, 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 babes. That's just being like, you're just Horrible. like slapping yourself for getting... I always say it's just making your brain a really hard place to live in. Like, it's just making it a really a harder place to exist. <laughs> well, it would be like taking your house and being like tearing down and graffiti. Yeah, you know, all with the nice like... wallpaper, everything, knocking the shelves <laughs> over. Like, that's, yeah, that's what self loathing is. It's like flinging shit on yes. the walls. <laughs> you know? And then being like, being but like... it's ironic. And like, no. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And like taking, you know, fucking up the fuse box so you've got no electricity or hot water or whatever. Like, oh, this is very nice, actually. Anyway, yeah. So I, I mean, like, listen sobriety and you know i have not had an alcoholic drink for over four years <laughs> but that's not to say i've been sober i've realized every day of those four years you know like i realized sobriety is it's much more isn't it than like putting down a drink and drugs there's like a it's a it's a sort of way of life you know i always think there's a difference between people that just choose not to drink because they're not really that into it that's like teetotal whereas sober well they may be very sober people as well but it's the sort of way of being and it's a way of questioning yourself and for me it's like it's not my first thought it's my second or third thought thought sober like because my first thought is not sober ever it's like i want to do the really bad thing that's going to be really quote unquote fun uh, and then it's not because it's going to destroy everyone and it's going to wind up with me in like a crack den having sex with someone who's not my husband you know like just doing awful things but to me that's real sobriety isn't it it's that waking up every day having the thoughts which often feel like intrusive almost and then making that active choice not to act on that and taking it one day at a time like that to me is like the heart of sobriety is making that conscious choice for yourself every day yeah it's the best thing I've ever done. And I've done some really nice things, cool things, like, as well. Like, I don't know, it's but, like, it, uh, it's just, it's, uh, I just, I never thought I'd be like, I love being sober, but I really do. It's just a joy and a wonder. Even when it's hard, you know, it's like, there's growth there as well. That's so wonderful. That's so wonderful to hear. And just, you know, the way you light up when you talk about it is mm. really special. Oh, I'm so, I'm just oh, I'm so relieved. Sometimes I'm just like, I'm so relieved I don't drink anymore. I don't, would not be alive talking to you. Put it that way. And we way. are so glad you are. So <laughs> I'm glad I am too. Yeah. Riley, one of the things you mentioned at the at the beginning was doing the running and running with honey and, and running yes. in your underwear. <laughs> Somehow and, um... coaxed me into my knickers <laughs> to run through London. Only you would I do that for. Um <laughs> And I'm really curious, are you still running and what are the things that you do now in addition to the sobriety to feel good in your body? Okay, so for me, exercise for like the gains and not the losses, mm -hmm. like completely transformed the way I approached exercise because it wasn't about losing weight, it was about feeling better. Like I don't exercise for the way it makes me look, I exercise for the way it makes me feel. So I'm not the slow, I'm not the, sorry, I'm not the fastest or the strongest, but like that's okay. It's like we, we have this weird thing which I think is drummed into us at school that like if you're not really good at sport you shouldn't mm -hmm. do it and it's a bit like saying if you don't have a Michelin star you can't cook yeah. <laughs> it's like no I don't have to be an Olympic athlete I just gotta go out there and do it and it's like so I'm like the world's slowest runner um I'd like an Olympic gold medal for that uh <laughs> and I but I love it I love it I, I was a bit I got a bit injured so I haven't been able to do it for a while but I, I, so in 2018 I ran the London Marathon in my underwear to prove that like women like me with I, I ran it with my friend Jada Cesar who's a, who's a plus size model plus size what a cobble load of shit that is she's a model she's beautiful she happens to not be I don't know, high sample sized or whatever, right? So anyway, so we ran, yeah, we ran the London Marathon in our underwear to like prove that people of all shapes and sizes could enjoy sport. And then we kind of, then what happened was the next year, we got a thousand women together of all different body experiences. So women as well with like stoma bags, who had cancer, who had, you know, like every, we, we tried to just like make it a big old, no, no one left behind, left behind. And it was called Celebrate You. Uh, and it was part of the uh, London uh, Vitality 10K. So London Marathon events have like really taken this on. They're like, yeah, woo. So anyway, um, I love, I mean, 
I don't like love. I don't wake up and go, I really want to go for a run. But I've realized that nobody does. Well, some people might do, but nobody regrets going mm-hmm. for one. So I do that and I don't do it to be like the fastest because when I start to go into, well, obviously I'm never going to be fastest, but when I start to go into that, it's like, it's like data driven, mm-hmm. isn't it? And I'm like, oh no, then what, what are you doing this for? This isn't fun. So joyless. No, but I'll tell you what I've started doing. I mean, like, why I'm like, why did no one tell me that cold water swimming's mm-hmm. good? And I'm like, everybody told you, Brian. <laughs> everybody told you. You just weren't listening. And um, I joined my local Lido, Tooting Lido. I've been going there. Uh, I went there this morning. The water was ten degrees, um, and I, I can still feel it now. You only go in for like ten minutes. So I do things that like feel good and feel challenging and fun. But not so. I do that, and I. What else do I do? I love reading. So you're like, thanks. That's really not that exciting, Bryony. <laughs> no, it's love. I also think those are interesting because to me, they feel like a really well balanced set of things that you do to make you feel at home. Because one is like cold swimming and running. Those are things that make me feel really alive, and then reading makes me feel really settled. And it's that kind of you've got a gorgeous mm. balance of things that get your heart beating, and then things that like. And exhale, you're you can settle now. Yeah, I do. I do. I love. I, like, I, when I'm like this evening, I'll have some dinner, and then I I do watch a lot of telly. But I try it. and I I go to bed quite early, so I can read. And I try and read for like two hours every wow. night. That's amazing. Yeah, that's like I'm very impressed. I love it. It's like the best thing. It's wonderful. Like, it's the best kind of escapism. When you get into a good book, you're like, oh wow, I've been transported. Oh, it's magic. I think, uh, yeah, and I think it probably probably will make makes me a better writer. But you know, anyway. But it's yeah, it's I love it. I love it. so those are the things I do, and I just hang out with my like daughter and my husband, <laughs> and you know, see see people connect. That is the most important thing for my mental health is connection. That was it. That was the thing that I've forgotten that I was meant to say is that in uh, rehab, we learned that um, addiction is the opposite of connection. Wow. Yeah. And I think that's true. Bryony, we have loved having you on the podcast so much. You've just been You've been a dream guest since we've started, mm-hmm. honestly. So I know I want I want another couple of hours. I've had such a nice time. Oh. It's so nice to talk to people. <laughs> I know it's, it's, like, it's like very very chic. I love it. Um, Bryony, what can we do, and what can our followers do to help support your work? Oh, I mean, uh, they can just follow me on Instagram, I guess at Bryony Gordon. Buy your books, listen to your podcast. Oh, yeah, if you want to. Well, if you want to buy the books, they're, they're there. There's about six of them, and I'm writing my seventh, but it's my first novel. Ooh. Oh, my God, that's well, very excited about that. And it's and it's all about body image. Oh, wow. Oh. I can't wait to read that. Okay, well, please send us early proofs. Yes, <laughs> I will. Oh, my God, totally. Um, and, then, and then, yeah, and I do a podcast called Mad World, which is where I speak to people about their mental health. We have from, like, Prince Harry to teenage girls who've been sectioned. We like to really mix it up, and then you know, so because it does affect everyone. Um, yeah, Mad World on all your normal podcast providers. Brilliant. Perfect. Thank you so much, Bryony. Thank you so much, lovely ladies. <laughs> Bryony is such a special soul, and it's like you said in the intro of just so generous the way she is able to share this it you know it really encourages me to keep on sharing difficult conversations and it's so important to segue slightly we did a little knowledge noodle on binge eating disorder uh on our cave sisters episode with bb and jesse uh but i think it would be great if you could give us a little quick recap on what exactly binge eating disorder is yeah of course i think that'll be really useful Just to start with a few disclaimers, caveats, I'm not a clinician and I'm not an expert in binge eating disorder. So this is really just me sharing some information as I'm also learning and reading about the topic. So what is binge eating disorder? It is defined by the presence and frequency of binge eating that's accompanied by psychological distress. So according to the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, the fifth edition, individuals with binge eating disorder report consuming 
an unusually large amount of food in a short duration compared to what others might consume in a similar situation or setting, as well as experiencing a loss of control over what they're eating and how they're eating in that period of time. So we've got those couple of components, eating a large amount of food in a short period of time with that sense of a loss of control. So that classifies the binge eating behavior And in addition to that, the DSM is looking for at least three of the following characteristics to also be present. So that can be consuming food much more rapidly than usual. It could be eating food until uncomfortably full, so it's painful. It feels physically and emotionally painful. It could be consuming large amounts of food when you're not hungry. It can be consuming that food alone to avoid embarrassment. Or it can be feeling disgusted, depressed, or guilty, or full of shame after that eating event. The diagnosis also requires that a significant amount of distress is associated with the binge eating episodes, and that the binge eating itself, that pattern of disordered eating behaviour, is regular and persistent. So the DSM-5 defines that being, on average, at least once a week for three months or more. And the other factor to consider within all of that is that the binge eating behavior is not accompanied by any regular extreme compensatory behavior like vomiting, taking laxatives, because that's when we merge into the territory of bulimia nervosa. So that's our definition. I think it's worth saying that binge eating as a behavior, as a disordered eating behavior, can occur across the eating disorder diagnoses it's a form of eating distress so by definition people with binge eating disorders engage in binge eating but then so do people with bulimia but the characteristic of bulimia is that binge purge pattern so getting rid of or attempting to get rid of the food through vomiting laxatives uh, that kind of thing but then also people with anorexia can engage in binge eating too Within anorexia, there's two subtypes. There's two subtype classifications, anorexia restrictive subtype and anorexia binge purge subtype. So as the name suggests, the the latter group also engage in binge purging. And to me, as a non-clinician, so I may be missing things out here, but the, the difference to me between anorexia binge purge subtype and bulimia nervosa is that anorexia binge purge subtype is also accompanied by extreme and enduring weight suppression so keeping your weight lower than than its set point weight which is not the norm with bulimia nervosa um and i've also heard people with anorexia the restrictive subtype also also engage in binge eating too it's less common but it happens and i've definitely heard about it happening in those early stages of recovery as people are trying to recalibrate their relationship with food so it can happen across the different diagnoses So a bit of a tangent, but just to try and draw out the difference or the distinction between binge eating disorder as an eating disorder in its own right, and then that behavioural pattern, that disordered eating behaviour that is binge eating. And then the other thing I wanted to just touch on very briefly when speaking about binge eating disorder is some of the factors, the risk factors associated with binge eating disorder. Very similar actually to other eating disorders, things like low self-esteem, low mood, perfectionism, so being very self-critical of oneself, difficulty with emotion regulation, poor body image, body shame, body dissatisfaction, restrictive eating patterns, very black and white thinking around food and bodies are all common. It's not to say that everyone experiences all of those things, but they all come up in the literature when we're looking at binge eating disorder. And then, of course, factors like trauma and experiences of discrimination, bullying can also be relevant for some people also. And I think it's interesting. I know we've spoken about this on the podcast at some point before, but especially at this stage of the pandemic where quite a lot of research has come out, looking at eating disorders within the context of the pandemic and within the context of lockdown, we have seen an increase in disordered eating behaviour and people presenting for treatment and for care. So, And that's been across the eating disorder spectrum. And so it's the reaction, it's a way of... It's a way of controlling your environment. Yeah, a way of controlling your environment, but also a way of managing difficult emotions, right? So it's a way of trying to deal with low mood, high stress, high anxiety. We all have different coping mechanisms and and for some people it's how they respond to food and the reasons for that are are complex and complicated but uh, partly because of the society that we live in and how society talks about food 
so much and talks about weight and talks about bodies and good and bad bodies and all of that and kind of thing. Good and bad food and all of these yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. Yes. exactly. You know, it's a snowball effect. Mm-hmm. On the kind of more positive side of things, what is, what's available in terms of treatment for binge eating disorder? You know, what is the way out of this? So there definitely is a way out. And I think I would say that for all eating disorders, however long you've had an eating disorder, I think there is always a way out. I will say that I'm not a clinician, so I am conscious of of what I'm saying. So bear in mind that I'm not a clinician, but I have opinions, but take them as you you will. So what I think is important when we're having conversations about any eating disorder treatment is that different types of treatment work for different people at different times in their lives. I would always encourage an openness to treatment and in the same breath, and this is just my opinion, but there's still an awful lot of work that you have to do yourself, regardless of the treatment that you receive. So even if you have access to the most intense modes of treatment, so you're going to residential care, ultimately that recovery work you have to do yourself mm-hmm. as you go on and live a full life. So it's definitely useful. I would always encourage it and I think it's really important, but there is other work that needs to go on around it. I also No, I think it's so important to make that distinction and I think it's... It's hard to help someone if they're not ready to receive help. And I think so much of the work has to come from within. And and it's the hard work of like a, tr- a, a treatment plan can only take you half of the way. You have to apply that to yourself and continue doing the work every single day. Right. And it sucks, right? Like, But I think oh, that yeah. is part of... It's like, <laughs> it sucks that time. I know. It, it sucks. <laughs> and that is part of having any kind of mental health condition, I think, in, to a huge extent. That Completely. a lot of it is like a lot of internal work that you have to do yourself and it's relentless. And, and it's every keep, day. <laughs> every like fucking keep, day. Keep working on it. But I would say a, a positive out of that is that self-help particularly when you've got the support of friends and family around you can also go a really long way so just something to to bear in mind so but going back to your question about what's what's available I've had a quick look at the literature and no surprises that CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is a common go-to for binge eating disorder cognitive behavioral therapy is pretty common in the treatment for all eating disorders and can be really useful and so the idea in a nutshell with with CBT is that you notice and examine the patterns that the patterns of negative thoughts, negative feelings and behaviors and that spiral that we we find ourselves in and then looking at ways to break that cycle. So as a horribly oversimplified example for someone with binge eating disorder who is engaging in lots of food restriction and that is precipitating the binge eating, implementing regular non-restrictive eating patterns can help in reducing those binge episodes, which then can give more room to focus on those negative thoughts and feelings. And then other strategies within CBT for binge eating can be thinking of identifying what are your binge eating triggers. It becomes very personal and I think you have to know yourself and know your own triggers. And then having a pre-planned list of things that you can do instead of the binge. So and think so and it and that can be very experimental in terms of trying different things but okay you feel you have that urge to binge look on that list what might feel could be useful what kind of is jumping out could be phoning a friend it could be going for a walk it could be having a bath anything and and giving that a go and and seeing how you respond to that and seeing if it it helps so that's definitely one avenue cbt Another avenue that I see a lot, but alarm bells go off for me every time. is, um, And again, my opinion, but... um, But a very good opinion. Yours (laughs) is one of my most prized opinions. I was like, "Mm." but I think um, I know it's the opinion of others as well and, and of people that I respect a lot. So I feel a little more confident in saying it. But okay, so sometimes you see weight management or weight loss as a quote treatment for for, for oh, lordy. binge eating disorder which terrifies me honestly I just can't see how that could be beneficial at all and I would steer well clear yeah um, that doesn't I mean, sit I think, right with me <laughs> no I mean I think to give pe- people the benefit of the doubt I think there's always good intentions behind it I think sometimes people present and being like I've put on all of this weight I feel uncomfortable da 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 so it may speak to people people may seek 
that kind of approach but it just feels problematic <laughs> to me and I think it's really important to emphasize that binge eating disorder is not a body size and so binge eating disorder because of the binge eating patterns can result in some weight gain people of all body sizes can have binge eating disorder and it's so important not to conflate binge eating disorder with a body size i think in general all eating disorders you cannot guess you can't there's no way of knowing what anyone's relationship to food is just by looking at them and i think that's pretty safe to say yeah a hundred percent so that is an alarm bell situation for me in terms of treatment i would be very cautious about that and it just to me screams weight stigma but when i was looking something that that did appeal and did seem interesting i couldn't find a lot about it but i only was looking quite briefly is self-compassion based therapy approaches to binge eating and and that makes a lot of conceptual sense to me and so very briefly self-compassion is often broken down into three components by Kristen neff so one will be mindfulness as opposed to over-identification, so that's defined as the ability to observe thoughts and feelings, including body-related ones, without judgment or over-identifying with them. The second one is common humanity, um, as opposed to isolation, and so that's defined as the ability to understand and identify one's own life experiences as human and feeling connected with others by identifying the experiences as common so not exclusive to you so you're not the only one you're not alone in this in this space and then the third one is self-kindness as opposed to self-criticism so defined as the ability to understand and be kind to yourself take care of yourself and accept your mistakes i feel like these are all of the things we practice I, on yes. this show like i, I love know. i love this model of self-compassion i think it's so important Especially that that we've spoken about before of stopping thoughts in your tracks and not being a passenger to your thoughts. If you are capable of hearing negative thoughts and then countering them with a positive one, that is doable. It's not easy, but it is doable. And giving yourself that self-kindness, it takes work, but it's really, really worth it. And and you you know what? It might feel really weird at first saying something yes. nice about yourself out loud or in, to yourself internally. It might feel weird, but... I promise it's worth sticking with because one day it won't feel weird. One day it will feel natural, like how self-criticism feels to most people, very natural. You can get to a point where that self-kindness is the natural thing that you go to. And that's an amazing feeling. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, there's one study that I'll just bring up very quickly, but it's a small study that was done by researchers in Canada. And they found that they looked at a couple of different models for treatment for binge eating disorder, again, with just a few people, but really interesting in terms of people who fear self-compassion which is quite common with eating disorder populations because I, I don't know there's like a perception that you're like letting yourself go if you're kind to yourself or you're I don't well, know I it's... think self-compassion is the antithesis of perfectionism yeah and I think so much of I don't want to generalize but so much of eating disorder behavior a lot of it comes from uh, perfectionism and I think it's it can be really scary. The thought of being kind to yourself does feel like... It's like you said, letting yourself go. You, which is... It's so interesting you said that. Me and my mum were talking about the phrase, letting yourself go. Mm. Think about what that means literally. Isn't that meant to be a lovely thing? You let yourself go. You free. I Like, yeah. I let go. That's a nice thing. Why Why have we made that a bad thing? Anyway, just my yeah. thoughts. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but completely. And, and so, but people who are like high in that state of fearing self-compassion... It can feel really daunting. It can feel really daunting. It's interesting because I think... I know that this was a tool that I used in CBT when I was trying to learn self-compassion. Um... But it's often a lot of people ask you to kind of imagine saying the things you say to yourself to like your five-year-old self. And would you actually say those things to yourself as a five-year-old? And it is a really powerful, painful, moving exercise um, to visualise that version of yourself in front of you and say some of the things you've maybe said to yourself in the past. Um, Not for the faint of heart, but give it a go (laughs) if you uh, feel up to it. Um, But yeah, I think we have not been taught self-kindness self-compassion sensitivity like or we're taught they're things that maybe aren't the way that we're taught that they're not the way in our society and it's like well it's what? not very capitalist is it to be it's like not oh, very be... Cap- <laughs> well yeah to let yourself go to let yourself go and be free and rest and eat what you need and you know 
live a happy life god forbid in our capitalist society um exactly exactly well there's so much we can we can say but i think in terms of treatment self-compassion seems to be a good option looking investigating cbt also could be a good option also just thinking that finding what's right for you i'd always say that for anyone is like finding what feels good and right for you at the time and then of course if you're struggling or have a loved one that is a good starting point always is seeking more information and support from if you're based in the uk charities like beat and that can give you more guidance and advice on where to seek support and they also often offer online support groups and things like that so there is always help out there yeah you're never alone with this and I think it's so important to remember that you really aren't alone Mm -hmm. people have felt what you are feeling yeah and there is support out there for you and community and on that note Nadia thank you so much for that bowl of noodles I love you with my whole heart and until next time love you too Thank you so much for listening to the Body Protest podcast. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and it would mean the world to us if you could rate, review, share and subscribe. You know what to do. And if you're left wanting more, why not check out our new Patreon for some exclusive bonus content. You can now also drop us an email at thebodyprotest at gmail.com. This podcast is produced by the sensational Daisy Grant and our dreamy music is by Eve Garland. And our new Knowledge Noodle jingle is by Zane Morris.